Chapter 5 of Space Hounds of IPC by E. E. Doc Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Space Hounds of IPC, Chapter 5 Cantrell's Comet. Far out in space, Jupiter, a tiny moon and its satellites mere pinpoints of light, Stevens turned to his companion with a grin. Well, Nadia, old golf shootist, here's where we turn space hounds again. Hope you like it better this time, because I'm afraid that we'll have to stay weightless for quite a while. He slowly throttled down the mighty flow of power, and watched the conflicting emotions play over Nadia's face in her purely personal battle against the sickening sensations caused by the decrease in their acceleration. I'm sorry as the dickens, sweetheart he went on tenderly, and the grin disappeared. Wish I could take it for you, but... But there are times when we've got to fight our own battles and bury our own dead, she interrupted gamely. Cut off the rest of that power. I'm not going to be sick. I won't be a... What do you spacehounds call us poor earthbound dubs who can't stand weightlessness? Weight fiends, isn't it? Yes, but you aren't. I know I'm not, and I'm not going to be one, either. I'm all ex, Steve. It's not so bad now, really. I held myself together that time, anyway, and I feel lots better now. Have you found Cantrell's Comet yet? And why so sure all of a sudden that they can't find us? That power beam still connects us to Ganymede, doesn't it? Maybe they can trace it. At a girl, Ace, he cheered. I'll tell the world you're no weight fiend. You're a space hound, right? Most first trippers, at this stage of the game, wouldn't be carrying a whoop whether school kept or not. And here you're taking an interest in all kinds of things already. You'll do, girl of my heart. No fooling. Maybe, and maybe you're trying to kid somebody, she returned, eyeing him intently. Or maybe you just don't want to answer those questions I asked you a minute ago. No, that's the straight data, right on zero across the panel, he assured her. And as for your questions, they're easy. No, I haven't looked for the comet yet, because we'll have to drift for a couple of days before we'll be anywhere near where I think it is. No, they can't trace us, because there is now nothing to trace unless they can detect the slight power we are using in our lights and so on, which possibility is vanishingly small. Potentially, our beam still exists, but since we are drawing no power, it has no actual present existence. See? Uh-uh, she dissented. I can't say that I can quite understand how a beam can exist potentially, and yet not be there actually enough to trace. Why, a thing has to be actual, or not exist at all. You can't possibly have something that is nothing. It doesn't make sense. But lay off those integrations of yours, please. As now armed with a slate pencil, Stevens began to draw a diagram upon a four-foot sheet of smooth slate. You know that your brand of math is over my head like a circus tent, so we'll let it lie. I'll take your word for it. Steve... If you're satisfied, it's all X with me. I think I can straighten you out a little by analogy. Here's a rough sketch of a cylinder, with shade and shadow. You've had descriptive geometry, of course, 
So know that a shadow, being simply a projection of a material object upon a plane, is a two-dimensional thing, or rather, a two-dimensional concept. Now take the shade, which is, of course, this entire figure here, between the cylinder casting the shadow and the plane of projection. You simply imagine that there is a point source of light at your point of projection. It isn't really there. The shade, then, of which I am drawing a picture, has only a potential existence. You know exactly where it is, you can draw it, you can define it, compute it, and work with it. But still, it doesn't exist. There is absolutely nothing to differentiate it from any other volume of air, and it cannot be detected by any physical or mechanical means. If, however, you place a light at the point of projection, the shade becomes actual and can be detected optically. By a sufficient stretch of the imagination, you might compare our beam to that shade. When we turn our power on, the beam is actual. It is a stream of tangible force, and as such can be detected electrically. When our switches are open, however, it exists only potentially. There is no motion in the ether, nothing whatever to indicate that a beam had ever actually existed there. With me? Floundering pretty badly, but I see it after a fashion. You physicists are peculiar freaks. Where we ordinary mortals see actual, solid, heavy objects, you see only empty space with a few electrons and things floating around in it. And yet, where we see only empty space you can see things, potentially, that may never exist at all. You'll be the death of me yet, Steve. But I'm wasting a lot of time. What do we do now? We get busy on the big tube. You might warm up the annealing oven and melt me that pot of glass, while I get busy on the filament supports, plate brackets, and so on. Both fell to work with a will, and hours passed rapidly and almost silently, so intent was each upon his own tasks. All X, Steve, Nadia broke the long silence. The pyrometer's on the red, and the oven's hot, and the man left his bench. Taking up a long paddle and an even longer blowpipe, he skimmed the melt to a dazzlingly bright surface and deftly formed a bubble. I just love to talk at you when you've got your mouth full of a blowpipe. Nadia eyed him impishly and tucked her feet beneath her, poised weightless as she was. I've got you foul now. I can say anything I want to, and you can't talk back, because your bubble will lose its shape if you do. Oh, isn't that a beauty? I never saw you blow anything that big before. And she felt silent, watching intently. Slowly, there was being drawn from the pot a huge, tapering bulb of hot, glistening glass, its cross-section at the molten surface varying as Stevens changed the rate of draw or the volume of air blown through the pipe. Soon, that section narrowed sharply. The glassblower waved his hand, and Nadia severed the form neatly with a glowing wire, just above the fluid surface of the glass remaining in the pot. Pendant from the blowpipe, the bulb was placed over the hot bench, where Stevens, now begoggled, begloved, and armed with a welding torch, proceeded to fuse into the still, almost plastic glass, sundry necks, side tubes, supports, and other attachments of peculiar pattern. Finally, 
the partially assembled tube was placed in the annealing oven, where it would remain at a high and constant temperature until its filaments, grids, and plates had been installed. Eventually, in that same oven, it would be allowed to cool slowly and uniformly over a period of days. Thus were performed many other tasks which are ordinarily done either by automatic machinery or by highly skilled specialists in labor, for these two, thrown upon their own resources, had long since learned how much specialization may be represented by the most commonplace article. Whenever they needed a thing they did not have, which happened every day, they had either to make it, or else, failing in that, to go back and build something that would enable them to manufacture the required item. Such setbacks had become so numerous as to be expected as part of the day's work. They no longer caused exasperation or annoyance. For two days the two jacks-of-all-trades worked at many lines and with many materials before Stevens called a halt. All X, Nadia. It's time for us to stop tinkering and turn into astronomers. We've been out for fifty IP hours, and we better begin looking around for our heap of scrap metal. And, the girl at the communicator plate and Stevens at their one small telescope, they began to search the black, star-jeweled heavens for Cantrell's comet. According to my figures, it ought to be about four hours right ascension, and something like plus twenty degrees declination. My figures aren't accurate, though, since I'm working purely from memory, so we'd better cover everything from Aldebaran to the Pleiades. But the directions will change as we go along, won't they? Not unless we pass it, because we're heading pretty nearly straight at it, I think. I don't see anything interesting thereabouts except stars. Will it have much tail? Very little. It's close to aphelion, you know, and a comet doesn't have much of a tail so far away from the sun. Hope it's got some of its tail left, though, or we may miss it entirely. Hours passed, during which the two observers peered intently into their instruments. Then Stevens left the telescope and went over to his slate. Looks bad, Ace. We should have spotted it before this. Time to eat, too. You'd better— Oh, look here, quick! Nadia interrupted. Here's something. Yes, it is a comet, and quite close. It's got a little bit of a dim tail. Stevens leaped to the communicator plate, and blonde head pressed close to brown, the two wayfarers studied the faint image of the wanderer of the void. That's it! I just know it is! Nadia declared. Steve... As a computer, you're a blinding flash and a deafening report. Yeah, missed it only about half a million kilometers or so, he replied, grinning. And I'd fire a whole flock of IP check stations for being four thousand off. However, I could have done worse. I could easily have forgotten all the data on it, instead of only half of it. He applied a normal negative acceleration, and Nadia heaved a profound sigh of relief, as her weight returned to her and her body again became manageable by the ordinary automatic and involuntary muscles. "'Guess I'm kind of a weight fiend at that, Steve. This is much better,' she exclaimed. 
Nobody denies that weight is more convenient at times. But you're a space hound just the same. You'll like it after a while, he prophesied. Stevens took careful observations upon the celestial body, altered his course sharply, then, after a measured time interval, again made careful readings. That's it, all X, he announced after completing his calculations, and he reduced their negative acceleration by a third. "'There. We'll be just about traveling with it when we get there,' he said. "'Now, little K.P. of my bosom, my supper's been on minus time for hours. What say we shake it up?' "'I'll check you to nineteen decimals,' and the two were soon attacking the savory Ganymedian goulash which Nadia had put in the cooker many hours before." Should we both go to sleep, Steve, or should one of us watch it? Sleep, by all means. There's no meteoric stuff out here, and we won't arrive before ten o'clock tomorrow, IP time. And, tired out by the events of the long day, man and maid sought their beds and plunged into dreamless slumber. While they slept, the forlorn hope drove on through the void at a terrific but constantly decreasing velocity and far off to one side, plunging along a line making a sharp angle with their own course, there loomed larger and larger the masses which made up the nucleus of Cantrell's comet. Upon awakening, Stephen's first thought was for the comet, and he observed it carefully before he aroused Nadia, who hurried into the control room. Looming large in the shortened range of the plate, their objective hurtled onward in its eternal course its enormous velocity betrayed only by the rapidity with which it sped past the incredibly brilliant background of infinitely distant stars. Apparently it was a wild jumble of separate fragments, a conglomerate, heterogeneous aggregation of rough and jagged masses, varying in size from grains of sand up to enormous chunks, which upon earth would have weighed millions of tons. Pervading the whole nucleus, a slow, indefinite movement was perceptible, a vague writhing and creeping of individual components working and slipping past and around each other, as they all rushed forward in obedience to the immutable cosmic law of gravitation. "'Oh, isn't that wonderful!' Nadia breathed. "'Think of actually going to visit a comet! It sort of scares me, Steve!' It's so creepy and crawly-looking. We're awfully close, aren't we?" Not so very. We'd probably have lots of time to eat breakfast. But just to be on the safe side, maybe I'd better camp here at the board, and you bring me over something to eat. All ex, chief, and Stevens ate, one eye upon the screen, watching closely the ever-increasing bulk of the comet. For many minutes he swung the forlorn hope in a wide curve, approaching the mountain of metal ever and ever more nearly, then turned to the girl. "'Hold everything, Nadia. Power's going off in a minute.' He shut off the beam. Then, noting that they were traveling a trifle faster than the comet, he applied a small voltage to one dirigible projector. Darting the beam here and there, he so corrected their flight that they were precisely stationary in relation to the comet. He then opened his switches, and the forlorn hope hurtled on. Apparently motionless, it was now a part of Cantrell's comet, 
traveling in a stupendous, elongated ellipse about the master of our solar system, the sun. "'There, Ace, who said anything about weight fiends? I was watching you, and you never turned a hair that time.' "'Why, that's right. I never even thought about it. I was so busy studying that thing out there. I suppose I've got used to it already?' "'Sure, you're one of us now. I knew you would be. Well, let's go places and do things. You better put on a suit, too, so you can stand in the airlock and handle the line.' They donned the heavily insulated, heated suits, and Stephen snapped the locking plugs of the drag line into their sockets upon the helmets. "'Hear me?' he asked. "'Sound discs all X?' "'All X.' On the radio, all X? All X. I tested your tanks and heaters. They're all X. But you'll have to test. I know the ritual by heart, Steve. It's been in every show in the country for the last year. But I didn't know you had to go through it every time you went out of doors. Halves, number one, all X. Two, all X. Three, all X. Quit it, he snapped. You aren't testing those valves. That checkup is no joke, guy. These suits are complicated affairs, and some parts are apt to get out of order. You see, a thing to give you fresh air at normal pressure and to keep you warm in absolute space can't be either simple or foolproof. They've worked on them for years, but they're pretty crude yet. They're tricky, and if one goes sour on you out in space, it's just too bad. You're lucky to get back alive." A lot of men are still out there somewhere because of the sloppy checkups. Excuse it, please. I'll be good. And the careful checking and testing of every vital part of the spacesuits went on. Satisfied at last that the armor was spaceworthy, Stevens picked up the coils of dragline, built of a non-metallic fiber which could retain its flexibility and strength in the bitter cold of outer space, and led the girl into the airlock. Heaven, Steve! It's perfectly stupendous! And grinding around worse than the wreckage of the Arcturus was when I wouldn't let you climb up it! Why, I thought comets were little, and hardly massive at all! exclaimed the girl. This is little, compared to any regular planet or satellite, or even to the asteroids. There's only a few cubic kilometers of matter there, and, as I said before, it's a decidedly unusual comet. You know the game? I've got it, and believe me, I'll yank you back here a lot faster than you can jump over there if any of those lumps start to fall on you. Is this drag line long enough? Yes, I've got a hundred meters here, and it's only fifty meters over there to where I'm going. So long! And with a light thrust of his feet, he dove head foremost across the intervening space, a heavy pike held out ahead of him. Straight as a bullet he floated toward his objective, a jagged chunk many yards in diameter, taking the shock of his landing by sliding along the pike handle as its head struck the mass. Then, bracing his feet against one lump, he pushed against its neighbor, and under that steady pressure the enormous masses moved apart and kept on moving, grinding among their fellows. Over and around them Stephen sprang, always watching his line of retreat as well as that of his advance, until his exploring pike struck a lump of apparently solid metal. 
Hooking the fragment toward him, he thrust savagely with his weapon and was reassured. That object was not only metal, but it was metal so hard that his pikehead of space-tempered alloy steel did not make an impression upon its surface. Turning on his helmet light, he swung his heavy hammer repeatedly, but could not break off even a small fragment. "'Found something, Steve?' Nadia's voice came clearly in his ears. "'I'll say I have. A hunk of solid, non-magnetic metal about the size of an office desk. I can't break off any of it, so I guess we'll have to grab the whole chunk.' He hitched the end of his cable around the nugget, made sure that the loops would not slip, and then, as Nadia tightened the line, he shoved mightily. "'All X, Nadia. She's coming. Pull in my drag line, as I said over there, and I'll help you land her.' Inside the forlorn hope, the mass of metal was urged into the shop, where Stevens clamped it immovably to the steel floor, before he took off his spacesuit. "'Why, it's getting covered with snow, and the whole room is getting positively cold!' Nadia exclaimed. "'Sure!' Anything that comes in from space is cold, even if it's been out only a few minutes, and that hunk of stuff has been out for nobody knows how many million years. It didn't get much heat from the sun, except at perihelion, you know, so it's probably somewhere around minus 260 degrees now. I'll have to throw a heater on it for half an hour before we can touch it. And since this is more or less new stuff to you, I'll caution you. Don't try to touch anything that has just come in. That hammer or pike would freeze your hand instantly, even though they've been out only a little while. Before you touch anything, blow on it, like this, see? If your breath freezes solid on it, like that, don't touch it. It's cold. Under the infrabeams of the heater, the mass of the metal was brought to room temperature, and Stevens attacked it with his machine tools. Bit by bit, the stubborn material was torn from the lump. Through heavy goggles, he watched the incandescent mass in a refractory crucible, in the heart of the induction furnace. "'What do you think you've got? What you want?' "'I don't know. It wasn't iron. It wouldn't hold a magnet. It's royal metal of some kind, I think. Base metals mostly melted around 1,500, and that crucible is still dry as a bone at better than seventeen. How are you going to separate out the tantalum and the others you want from the ones that you don't want? I'm afraid that I'm not going to very well, replied Stevens with a wry grimace. What I don't know about metallurgy would fill a library, and I'm probably the world's worst chemist. However, by a series of successive liquations, I hope to separate out fractions that I can use. Platinum melts somewhere around 1750, tantalum about 2900, and tungsten not until way up around 33 or 400. And that, by the way, means lots of grief. Of course, each fraction will probably be an alloy of one kind or another, but I think maybe I'll be able to make them do. But may the whole chunk be a pure metal? It's conceivable, but not probable. There, she's beginning to separate, at just below 1,800. Platinum group coming out now, I think. 
Platinum, rhodium, iridium, and that gang, you know. While I'm doing this, you might be getting those five coils into exact resonance, if you want to. Sure I want to. And Nadia made her way across to the short-wave oscillator and set to work. After an hour or so, bent over her delicate task, she began to twitch uneasily, then shrugged her shoulders impatiently. "'What's the idea of staring at me so?' she broke out suddenly. "'How do you expect me to tune these things up if you—' She stopped abruptly, mouth open in amazement, as she turned toward Stevens. He had not even been looking at her, but he turned a surprised face from his own task at the sound of her voice. "'Excuse me, please, Steve. I don't know what's the matter with me. Must be getting jumpy, I guess.' I wish that was all, but it isn't. Face suddenly grim and hard, Stevens leaped to the communicator plate and shot the beam out into space. There's an answer, but that isn't it. You're a fine-tuned instrument yourself, Ace, and you've detected something. I thought so. There's the answer. The guy that was looking at you. Plainly, there was revealed upon the plate a small, spherical spaceship, very like the one that had attacked and destroyed the Arcturus. After Nadia had taken one glance at it, Stephen shut off the power and leaped out into the shop. He closed all the bulkhead doors and air-brake openings, then closed and secured the massive insulating door of the lifeboat in which they had made their headquarters. Then, after they had again put on the spacesuits they had taken off such a short time before, he extinguished all the lights and hooded the communicator screen before he ventured again to glance out into the void. "'If I had a brain in my head, instead of the pint of bean soup I've got up there, we'd have worn these when they cut up the Arcturus, and saved us a lot of mental wear and tear,' he remarked. They were right there in the lockers all the time, and I knew it. Well, we got away anyway. You couldn't be expected to think of everything at once. We didn't have much time, you know. No, but I should have thought of anything as obvious as that, anyway. Wonder how they found us. Did they detect us, or did they come out to this comet after metal, same as we did, and find us accidentally? However, it all works out the same. They're apparently out to get us. I'm afraid this is going to be a whole lot like a rabbit fighting back at a man with a gun. But we'll sure try to nibble us off a lunch while they're getting a square meal. Here they come. The enemy sphere launched its flaming plane of force, and the forlorn hope shuddered in every plate and member as its apex was severed cleanly under the impact. Instantly, Stevens hurled his only weapons. Flaming ultraviolet and dully glowing infrared, the twin beams lashed out. But their utmost force was of slight moment to the enormous power driving the enemy screens. Two circular spots of cherry red in space were the only results of Stevens' attack, and the next fierce cut sheared away the two projectors, and, incidentally, a full half of the fifty-inch armor of the leading edge. "'Then we're checking out now?' Nadia asked quietly, as the man's hands dropped from his useless controls. "'I'm sorrier than I can say, lover, 
but at least I'm glad I can go out with you." And her glorious eyes were shining with unshed tears. Maybe, but snap out of it, girl. Our hearts are still beating. We're not dead yet. And maybe we won't be. Perhaps they want to capture us alive, as they did before. If so, we may be able to hide out on them somewhere and pull off another escape. Things don't look very bright, I know. But we're not checking out until our numbers are actually run up." He hooked a hand under her belt as the shocks came closer, and stood tense and ready. The Lansing plane cut through one end of their control room, and Stevens leaped with his companion toward the new-made opening while the air shrieked outward into space and their suits bulged suddenly with the abrupt increase in pressure differential. While they were in mid-flight, the frightful blade of destruction cleaved its way through the control board and through the spot upon which they had been standing a moment before. As they passed the severed edge, en route into open space, Stephen seized a metal brace and clung there, every nerve taut. "'Something funny here, Nadia,' he said after a little, in a low tone. "'They should have made one more cut, to make us absolutely blind and helpless. As it is, they've clipped off all our projectors, so we can't move. But I think we've got the whole control compartment of Number 2 lifeboat untouched. If so, we can look around anyway. Let's go.' Floating without effort from fragment to fragment, they made their way toward the section of their cruiser as yet undamaged. They found an airlock in working order, and were soon in the second lifeboat, where Stevens hastily turned on a communicator and peered out into space. There they are. There's another stranger out there, too. They're fighting with her now. That's probably why they didn't polish us off. Steel-braced, clumsy helmets touching, the two terrestrials stared spellbound into the plate, watching while the insensately vicious intelligences within the sphere brought its every force to bear upon another and larger sphere, which was now so close as to be plainly visible. Like a gigantic drop of quicksilver this second globe appeared. Its smooth and highly polished surface one enormous, perfect, spherical mirror. Watching tensely, they saw flash out that frightful plane of seething energy, with the effects of which they were all too familiar, and saw it strike full upon the dazzling ball. "'This is awful, Ace,' Stevens groaned. "'They haven't got ray screens either, and without them they don't stand a chance.' No possible substance can stand up under that beam. When they get done and turn back to us, we'll have to dive back to where we were." But the brilliant mirror was not as vulnerable as Stevens had supposed. The plane of force struck and clung, but could not penetrate it. Broken up into myriads of scintillating crystals of light, intersecting multicolored rays, and cascading flares of sparkling energy, the beam was reflected, thrown back, hurled away on all sides into space in coruscating, blinding torrents. And neither was the monster globe inoffensive. The straining watchers saw a port open suddenly, emit a flame erupting something, and close as rapidly as it had opened. 
That something was a projectile, its propelling rockets fiercely aflame, as smoothly brilliant as its mothership and seemingly as impervious to the lethal beams of the common foe. Detected almost instantly as it was, it received the full power of the savage attack. The hitherto irresistible plane of force beat upon it. Ultraviolet, infrared, and heat rays enveloped it. There were hurled against it all the forces known to the scientific minds within that fiendishly destructive sphere. Finally, only a scant few hundreds of yards from its goal, the protective mirror was punctured, and the freight of high explosive let go, with a silent but nevertheless terrific detonation. But now another torpedo was on its way, and another, and another, boring on ruthlessly toward the smaller sphere. Fighting simultaneously three torpedoes and the giant globe, the enemy began dodging, darting hither and thither with a stupendous acceleration. But the tiny pursuers could not be shaken off. At every dodge and turn, steering rockets burst into furious activity, and the projectiles rushed ever nearer. Knowing that she had at least encountered a superior force, the sphere turned in mad flight. But, prodigious as was her acceleration, the torpedoes were faster, and all three of them struck her at once. There ensued an explosion, veritably space-racking in its intensity, a flash of incandescent brilliance that seemed to fill all space, subsiding to a vast volume of tenuous gas, which, feebly glowing, flowed about and attached itself to Cantrell's comet. And in the space where had been the enemy sphere there was nothing. A slow creeping pale blue rod of tangible force reached out from the great sphere, touched the wreckage of the forlorn hope, and pulled, gently but with enormous power. "'Tractor beams again!' exclaimed Stevens, still at the plate. "'Everybody's got em but us, it seems.' "'And we can't fight a bit any more, can we?' "'Not a chance. Bows and arrows wouldn't do us much good. However, we may not need em. Since they fought that other crew and haven't blown us up, they aren't active enemies of ours, and may be friendly. I haven't any idea who or what they are.' since even our communicator ray can't get through that mirror, but it looks as though our best bet is to act peaceable and see if we can't talk to them in some way, right? Right. They stepped out into the airlock, from which they saw that the great sphere had halted only a few yards from them, and that an indistinct figure stood in an open door, waving to them an unmistakable invitation to enter the strange vessel. Shall we, Steve? "'Might as well. They've got us foul, and can take us if they want us. Anyway, we'll need at least a week to fix us up any kind of driving power, so we can't run, and we probably couldn't get away from those folks if we had all our power. They haven't blown us up, and they could have done it easily enough. Besides, they act friendly, so we'd better meet them halfway. Dive!' Floating toward the open doorway, they were met by another rod of force, brought gently into the airlock, and supported upright beside the being who had invited them to visit him. 
Apparently, an empty spacesuit stood there, a peculiarly fitted suit of some partially transparent, flexible, glass-like material, towering fully a foot over the head of the tall terrestrial. Closer inspection, however, revealed that there was something inside that suit, a shadowy, weirdly transparent being, staring at them with large black eyes. The door clanged shut behind them. They heard the faint hiss of inrushing air, and the inner door opened. But their enveloping suits remained stretched almost as tightly as ever. They felt the floor lurch beneath their feet. A little weight was granted them as the spaceship got under way. Stevens waved his arms vigorously at the stranger, pointing backward toward where he supposed their own craft to be. The latter waved an arm reassuringly, pressed a contact and a section of the wall suddenly became transparent. Through it, Stephen saw with satisfaction that the forlorn hope was not being abandoned. In the grip of powerful tractor beams, every fragment of the wreckage was following close behind them in their flight through space. Stevens and Nadia followed their guide along a corridor, through several doors, and into a large room, which at first glance seemed empty but in which several of the peculiarly transparent people of the craft were lying about upon cushions. They were undoubtedly human, but what humans! Tall and reedy they were, with enormous barrel chests, topped by heads, which, though really large, appeared insignificant, because of the prodigious chests and because of the huge, sail-like, flapping ears. Their skins were a strikingly livid pale blue, absolutely devoid of hair, and their lidless eyes, without a sign of iris, were chillingly horrible in their stark contrast of enormous glaring black pupil and ghastly transparent blue eyeball. As the two terrestrials entered the room, the beings struggled to their feet and hurried laboriously away. Soon one of them returned, dressed in an insulating suit and carrying three sets of head-harnesses, connected by multiplex cables to a large box which he placed upon the floor. He handed the headsets to the first officer, who in turn placed two of them at the feet of the terrestrials, indicating to them that they were to follow his example in placing them upon their heads outside the helmets. They did so, and even through the almost perfect insulation, and in spite of the powerful heaters of their suits, they felt a touch of frightful cold. The stranger turned a dial, and the two wanderers from Earth were instantly in full mental communication with Barkovis, the commander of a spaceship of Titan, the sixth satellite of Saturn. "'Well, I'll be! Say, what is this, anyway?' Steve exclaimed involuntarily, and Nadia smiled as Barkovis answered with a thought— clearer than any spoken words. It is a thought-exchanger. I do not know its fundamental mechanism, since we did not invent it, and since I have had little time to study it. The apparatus, practically as you see it here, was discovered but a short time ago, in a small, rocket-propelled spaceship, which we found some distance outside the orbit of Jupiter." Its source of power had been destroyed by the cold of outer space, but repowering it was, of course, a small matter. The crew of the vessel were all dead. 
They were, however, of human stock, and of a type adapted for life upon a satellite. I deduce, from your compact structure, your enormous atmospheric pressure, and your, to us, unbelievably high body temperature, that you must be planet-dwellers. I suppose that you are natives of Jupiter?" Not quite. Stevens had in a measure recovered from his stunned surprise. We are from Tellus, the third planet, and he revealed rapidly the events leading up to their present situation, concluding, The people in the other sphere were, we believe, natives of Jupiter or of one of the satellites. We know nothing of them, since we could not look through their screens. You rescued us from them. Do you not know them? No. Our visirays also were stopped by their screens of force. Screens entirely foreign to our science. This is the first time that any vessel from our Saturnian system has ever succeeded in reaching the neighborhood of Jupiter. We came in peace, but they attacked us at sight, and we were obliged to destroy them. Now we must hurry back to Titan, for two reasons. First, because we are already at the extreme limit of our power range, and Jupiter is getting further and further away from Saturn. Second, because our mirrors, which we had thought perfect reflectors of all frequencies possible of generation, are not perfect. Enough of those forces came through the mirrors to volatize half our crew, and in a few minutes more none of us would have been left alive. Why, in some places, our very atmosphere became almost hot enough to melt water. If another of those vessels should attack us, in all probability we should all be lost. Therefore we are leaving as rapidly as is possible. You are taking the pieces of our ship along. We do not want to encumber you. It is no encumbrance, since we have ample supplies of power. In fact, we are now employing the highest acceleration we Titanians can endure for any length of time." Stevens pondered long, forgetting that his thoughts were plain as print to the Titanian commander. Thank heaven these strangers had sense enough to be friendly. All intelligent races should be friends, for mutual advancement. But it was a mighty long stretch to Saturn, and this acceleration wasn't so much. How long would it take to get there? Could they get back? Wouldn't they save time by casting themselves adrift, making the repairs most urgently needed, and going back to Ganymede under their own power? But would they have enough power left in the wreck to get even that far? And how about the big tube? He was interrupted by an insistent thought from Barkovis. You will save time, Stevens, by coming with us to Titan. There we shall aid you in repairing your vessel, and in completing your transmitting tube, in which we shall be deeply interested. Our power plant shall supply you with energy for your return journey until you are close enough to Jupiter to recover your own beam. You are tired. I would suggest that you rest, that you sleep long and peacefully. You seem to be handling the forlorn hope without any trouble. The pieces aren't grinding at all. We'd better live there, hadn't we? Yes, that would be best for all of us. You could not live a minute here without your suits, and, efficiently insulated as those suits are, 
yet your incandescent body temperature makes our rooms unbearably hot. So hot that any of us must wear a spacesuit while in the same room with you, to avoid being burned to death." The incandescently hot terrestrials were wafted into the open airlock of their lifeboat upon a wand of force, and soon had prepared a long overdue supper, over which Stevens cast his infectious boyish grin at Nadia. "'Sweetheart, you are undoubtedly a warm number, and you have often remarked that I burn you up. Nevertheless, I think that we were both considerably surprised to discover that we are both hot enough actually to consume persons, unfortunate enough to be confined in the same room with us. "'You're funny, Steve, like a crutch,' she rebuked him, but smiled back, an elusive dimple playing in one lovely brown cheek. "'Looking right through anybody is too ghastly for words. But I think they're perfectly all X anyway, in spite of their being so hideous and so cold-blooded. End of chapter 5